Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon that was once preached by Charles Spurgeon. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman, known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from Volume 1, and it's uh, number 44. It's called Repentance Unto Life. It was a sermon that was delivered on Sabbath morning, September 23, 1855, at the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark, England. The text is Acts eleven eighteen. Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. One of the greatest obstacles which the Christian religion ever overcame was the inveterate prejudice which possessed the minds of its earliest followers. The Jewish believers, the twelve apostles, and those whom Jesus Christ had called from the dispersed of Israel were so attached to the idea that salvation was of the Jews, that none but the disciples of Abraham, or at any rate the circumcised ones, could be saved, that they could not bring themselves to the thought that Jesus had come to be the Savior of all nations, and that in him should all the people of the earth be blessed. It was with difficulty they could allow the supposition. It was so opposite to all their Jewish education that we find them summoning Peter before a council of Christians and saying to him, You went into men uncircumcised and did eat with them. Nor could Peter exonerate himself until he had rehearsed the matter fully and said that God had appeared to him in a vision declaring what God has cleansed do not call common and that the Lord had bidden him preach the gospel to Cornelius and his household, inasmuch as they were believers. After this, the power of grace was so mighty that these Jews could no longer withstand it, and in the teeth of all their previous education, they at once assumed the broad principle of Christianity, and glorified God, as it says, saying, Then has God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Let's us bless God that we are now free from the trammels of Judaism and that we are not under those of a Gentilism which has in its turn excluded the Jew, but that we live so near the blessed time that is coming when Jew and Gentile, bond and free, shall feel themselves one in Jesus Christ our head. I am not now, however, about to enlarge upon this, My subject this morning is repentance unto life. May God give me grace to speak to you in such a way that his word may be as a sharp sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. By repentance unto life, I think we're to understand that repentance, which is accompanied by spiritual life in the soul and ensures eternal life to everyone who possesses it. Repentance unto life, I say, brings with it spiritual life, or rather, is the first consequent thereof. There are repentances which are not signs of life, except of natural life, because they are only effected by the power of the conscience and the voice of nature speaking in men. But the repentance here spoken of is produced by the author of life, and when it comes, it begets such life in the soul that he who was 
dead in trespasses and sins, is quickened together with Christ. He who had no spiritual susceptibilities now receives with meekness the engrafted word. He who slumbered in the very center of corruption receives power to become one of the sons of God and to be near his throne. This, I think, is repentance unto life, that which gives life unto a dead spirit. I've also said that this repentance ensures eternal life, for there are repentances of which you hear men speak which do not secure the salvation of the soul. Some preachers will affirm that men may repent and may believe and yet may fall away and perish. Well, we will not consume our time by stopping to expose their error this morning. We've often considered it before and have refuted all that they could say in defense of their dogma. Let us think of an infinitely better repentance. The repentance of our text is not their repentance but it is a repentance unto life, a repentance which is a true sign of eternal salvation in Christ, a repentance which preserves us through this temporary state in Jesus and which, when we are passed into eternity, gives us a bliss which cannot be destroyed. Repentance unto life is the act of salvation of the soul, the germ which contains all the essentials of salvation, which secures them to us and prepares us for them. We are, this morning, to give a very careful and prayerful attention to the repentance which is unto life. First, I shall devote a few minutes to the consideration of false repentance. Secondly, I shall consider the signs that mark true repentance, and after that, I shall extol the divine beneficence of which it is written, Then has God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. First then, we'll consider certain false repentances. I'll begin with this remark, that trembling beneath the sound of the gospel is not repentance. There are many men who, when they hear a faithful gospel sermon, are exceedingly stirred and moved by it. By a certain power which accompanies the word, God testifies that it is his own word, and he causes those who hear it involuntarily to tremble. I have seen some men, while while the truths of Scripture have been sounded from this pulpit, whose knees have knocked together, whose eyes have flowed with tears as if they had been fountains of water. I have witnessed the deep dejection of their spirit when, as some of them have told me, they have been shaken until they knew not how to abide the sound of the voice, for it seemed like the terrible trumpet of Sinai thundering out their destruction. Well, my hearers, you may be very much disturbed under the preaching of the gospel, and yet you shall not have that repentance unto life. You may know what it is to be very seriously and very solemnly affected when you go to God's house, and yet you may be hardened sinners. Let me confirm the remark by an instance. Paul stood before Felix with chains upon his hands, and as he preached of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, it is written that Felix trembled, And yet, procrastinating Felix is in perdition 
among the rest of those who have said, Go thy way for this time, when I have a more convenient season, I will call for thee. There are many of you who cannot attend the house of God without being alarmed. You know what it is often to stand aghast at the thought that God would punish you? You may often have been moved to sincere emotion under God's minister, but let me tell you, you may be, after all, a castaway because you have not repented of your sins and neither have you turned to God. Further still, it is quite possible that you may not only tremble before God's word, but you may become a sort of amiable Agrippa and be almost persuaded to turn to Jesus Christ and yet have no repentance. Well, you may go further, even desire the gospel. You may say, oh, this gospel is such a goodly thing. I, I wish I had it. It ensures so much happiness here and so much joy hereafter. I wish I could call it my own. Oh, well, it is good to hear this voice of God. But you may sit, and while some powerful text is being well handled, you may say, I think it is true, but it must enter the heart before you can repent. You may even go upon your knees in prayer, and you may ask with a terrified lip, that this may be blessed to your soul, and after all that, you may still be no child of God. You may say, as Agrippa said to Paul, almost you persuaded me to be a Christian. And yet, like Agrippa, you may never proceed beyond the almost. Now, he was almost persuaded to be a Christian, but not altogether. Now, how many of you here have been almost persuaded and yet you're not really in the way of eternal life. How often has conviction brought you on your knees and you've almost repented, but you've remained there without actually repenting? You see that corpse? It is lately dead. It has scarcely acquired the ghastliness of death. The color is still lifelike. Its hand is still warm. You may fancy it is alive, and it seems almost to breathe. Everything is there. The worm has scarcely touched it. Dissolution has scarcely approached. There is no offensive smell. And yet life is gone. Life is not there. And so it is with you. You're almost alive. You have almost every external organ of religion which the Christian has, but you have not life. You may have repentance, but not sincere repentance. O oh, hypocrite, I warn you this morning, you may not only tremble, but feel a satisfaction towards the word of God, and yet, after all, not have repentance unto life. You may sink down into the pit that is bottomless, and, and hear it said, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And yet again, it is possible for men to progress even further than this, and positively to humble themselves under the hand of God, and yet they may be total strangers to repentance. Their goodness is not like the morning cloud and the early dew that passes away. But when the sermon is heard, they go home and commence what they conceive to be the work of repentance. They renounce certain vices and follies. They clothe themselves in sackcloth. They, the, the tears flow very freely on account of what they have done. They weep before God. And yet with all that, 
Their repentance is but a temporary repentance, and they go back to their sins again. Do you deny that such a penitence can exist? Well, let me tell you of a case. A certain man named Ahab coveted the vineyard of his neighbor, Naboth, who wouldn't sell it for a price or make an exchange. So Ahab consulted with his wife, Jezebel, who contrived to put Naboth to death and thus secure the vineyard to the king. After Naboth was put to death and Ahab had taken possession of the vineyard, the servant of the Lord met Ahab and said to him, Have you killed and also taken possession? Thus saith the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth, shall the dogs lick your blood, yours. Behold, I will bring evil upon you, and I will take away your prosperity. Well, we read that Ahab went away and humbled himself. And the Lord said, Because Ahab humbles himself before me, I will not bring evil in his days. He had granted him some kind of mercy, but we read in the very next chapter that Ahab rebelled. And in a battle in Ramoth-Gilead, according to the servant of the Lord, he was slain there, so that the dogs licked his blood in the very vineyard of Naboth. You, too, I tell you, may humble yourselves before God for a time, and yet remain the slaves of your transgressions. You're afraid of damnation, but you're not afraid of sinning. You're afraid of hell, but you're not afraid of your iniquities. You're afraid of being cast into the pit, but you're not afraid to harden your hearts against his commands. Is it not true, O sinner, that you are trembling at hell? It is not the soul's state that troubles you, but hell. If hell were extinguished, your repentance would be extinguished. If the terrors awaiting you were withdrawn, you would sin with a higher hand than before, and your soul would be hardened and would rebel against its sovereign. Be not deceived, my brethren, here. Examine yourselves whether you're in the faith. Ask yourselves if you have that which is repentance unto life. For you may humble yourselves for a time and yet never repent before God. Beyond this, many advance and yet fall short of grace. It is possible that you may even confess your sins and may not repent. You may approach God and tell Him you're a wretch indeed. You may enumerate a long list of your transgressions and of the sins you have committed without a sense of the heinousness of your guilt, without a spark of real hatred of your deeds. You may confess and acknowledge your transgressions and yet have no abhorrence of sin. And if you do not in the strength of God resist sin, if you do not turn from it, this fancied repentance shall be but the gilding which displays the paint which decorates. It is not the grace which transforms into gold which will abide the fire. You may even, I say, confess your faults and yet have not repentance. Uh, once more, and then I, I've gone to the farthest thought I have to give on this point. You may do some work meet suitable for repentance, and yet you still may be impenitent. Let me give you a proof of this fact, authenticated by inspiration. Judas betrayed his master. And after having done so, an overwhelming sense of the enormous evil he had committed seized upon him. 
His guilt buried all hope of repentance. And in the misery of desperation, not the grief of true regret, he confessed his sin to the high priest, crying, I have sinned, in that I have betrayed innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See thou to that. Whereupon he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple to show that he could not bear to carry the price of guilt upon him and and left them there. He went out and was he saved? Oh no, he went out and hanged himself. And even then the vengeance of God followed him for when he had hanged himself he fell from the height where he was suspended and was dashed to pieces. He was lost and his soul perished. Yet see what this man did. He had sinned. He confessed his wrong. He returned the gold. Still, after all of that, he was a castaway. Doesn't this make us tremble? You see how possible it is to be the ape, the mimic of the Christian, so nearly that wisdom itself, if it be only mortal, may be deceived. Well, there are many false kinds of repentance, but when we get back together again, I want to share with you Spurgeon's remarks on the true repentance. True repentance. You can access this whole series of messages online, not not audio, except here, but in a written form at SpurgeonGems.com. Spurgeon with then gems, G-E-M-S, dot com, all one word. And this is the Hackberry House of Chosa. And Lord willing, we're going to talk again real soon. This audio is being released on the 7th of February, 2023. God bless.